0: the individuals that are being pitted against each other are rival gang members. And so they're sworn enemies, mortal enemies. And so not to engage your mortal enemy, given the opportunity, because the opportunity doesn't often present itself, would be deemed cowardice. And you would be killed as a result by your own people.
1: This
2: was a challenging episode because I interview the founder of the Aryan Brotherhood, a racist prison gang. My mate and co-host Sean Atwood is no stranger to true crime, having worked on both sides of it as a journalist and presenter now, and also as the boss of an organised crime ring in the States, that smuggled ecstasy, Sean spent five years in America's deadliest prison in Arizona, and even featured on the UK TV show Banged Up Abroad. And he asked me if I fancied co-hosting this one with Michael Thompson, the founder of the Aryan Brotherhood. Me being Jewish, of course, adds to the intrigue coming face to face with a man like that. And I said yes, because I wanted to see inside this man's head. Michael Thompson has since done something of a 180 turn. He doesn't hold racist beliefs now. In fact, he claims that he sort of never did and that the Aryan Brotherhood wasn't set up to be racist. As regular listeners know, my style is not to push too much or be judgmental. I'm just curious. I'm intrigued about what I can learn just from listening to him. And I don't infantilize my listeners. You can make up your own minds about how much to believe. Personally, I would say that I find I think Michael should take a little bit more responsibility for some of the the, the views of the gang. Looking back over the interview, I find there are just quite a few times where uh, he seemed to be in the wrong place in the wrong time and was misunderstood. And sometimes I think it would be better if he could just hold his hands up and say, you know, I don't hold those views now. But, you know, because there are claims that it was never supposed to be racist, the Aryan Brotherhood. And I just find that to me, that's just a little bit far. I am trying to remain curious and non-judgmental, of course. Uh, that said, it is fascinating to hear someone you might have a certain image of musing so calmly and philosophically about existentialism and, and philosophy and whatever else. He's a very, very smart and softly spoken Aryan Brotherhood founder you know in this first part the second part is out next week we talk about the crazy way that guards forced prisoners to fight each other and then killed them when it became violent and sort of put bets on them it's it's one of the most extraordinary things i've ever heard actually uh, absolutely awful and again shows that fine line between perpetrator and victim police officer and criminal and all those kinds of things you know the things movies are made about Thank you to Sean Atwood for putting this together. Do go follow his audio and YouTube channels. Coming up are episodes with Rebecca Smethurst about black holes, a piece about Julian Assange, and lots more cultish and ideological stuff coming up. But now you're on the edge of the Aryan Brotherhood with Sean Atwood and
1: Michael Thompson. All right, huge thank you to Michael Thompson. He's been so generous with his time. This is the fourth podcast now within a matter of months. Millions of people have viewed his videos on the channel, and there is an endless fascination with one of the founders of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang, who served four and a half decades in the California state prison system was shot 22 times i mean there's a point in the story where just mind-blowing people that they watch this and they're thinking how can this even be they had to build their muscles so thick because they had two minutes for these knife fights before the guards shot them dead and if their muscles were thick then the burning of the pellets from the guns into the flesh they could withstand that for a little bit longer while they was enduring these knife fights that's just just one little example of the epic journey that Michael has been through, and um, we've got Andrew Gold co hosting this evening. Uh, hello, yeah, go for it. <laughs>
2: Just, um, hello, Andrew Gold from the On the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast, Sean's longtime co host and maybe even friend. I
1: might say, <laughs> do, do appreciate that, Andrew. <laughs> so 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 Michael you know we had we had a guy fly over um, from California he served 40 years he did 20 of those he said housed around where you were housed and he told mm-hmm. us these stories about Corcoran prison he, he went and I know you previously mentioned it but the level of detail that he went into and, and the depth I had no idea and I've, I've pulled these articles up, there's Los Angeles Times, there's The Independent, even in the UK, this was getting reported on back in 1996. Right. Violent inmates at California's top max security jail were purred off in staged fights mm-hmm. as watching prison guards bet on the outcomes. In some cases, prisoners who refused to stop fighting were shot dead in a ritual that became known as gladiator days. Known enemies at Corcoran State Prison were released in their cells and purred off like fighting cocks in empty prison yards and the guy flew over he told us all the staff lined up they brought out the female staff members it was literally like a spectacle like like the gladiator arena what what, Mm -hmm. what 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 can you confirm about that michael
0: well it's true you know i can i guess just right off the top confirm that those things were happening you had a um Uh, Department of Justice investigation that was conducted um, into that very aspect that that didn't occur until after uh, eight inmates had been killed, shot and killed. And um, so then the Department of Justice, as well as the FBI, came in and did an investigation. And the uh, California legislature, um, Romero, I think was her name, She was the chairperson of the Senate Select Committee, and uh, she held uh, hearings on that. There's um, an enormous transcript available to the public if they really want to get in-depth into what was going on, but it's true, and um, I know that from firsthand knowledge on a couple of levels. Not only was I the subject of being set up a few times um, for fights. But uh, I also worked as the captain's clerk uh, on that particular yard that they're talking about. And um, so not only would uh, staff gather to watch these fights, um, but what was to me even more interesting was that those fights were videotaped. And so they would bring those into the office and more staff would even gather around. They'd kind of, you know, make their way in and check out the video. And, um, of course, they were taking book um, on the outcome. Wow. And um, Yeah, it it was uh, pretty extreme. But Hmm. Corcoran is where um, the guards developed what was called the Green Wall. And the Green Wall was a takeoff of um, another gang, essentially. And the members of that green wall were called uh, sharks. And um, they engaged in their own form of violence, which was pretty extreme. And I was the subject of um, a few of those beatings.
2: Take us inside your mind, your headspace, when you're just realizing you're being pushed into a fight by guards and and that if you don't, you're going to be killed by them. What does that feel like for you?
0: Mm, It's a great question, Andrew. you're constantly prepared in an environment like that um the term is when the gates rack and what that means is is when the doors open now oftentimes those doors will open with no warning nothing and the next thing you know you're out on the tier um, with your enemy and if you don't go out to the tier of course then your enemy comes into the cell and if he has a knife then you've really uh, set yourself at a disadvantage because of the uh, small space involved. If you're out on the tier, you're actually able to move better. So you're in front of the gunner. And um, the key, just like in anything else, is that you have to keep moving. So it really becomes, as a result of preparedness, second nature. Um, it's probably difficult, I think, for most folks to wrap their mind around this level of violence. You know, I've had people. Um, expressed to me the idea of uh, these altercations uh, being sensationalized. Um, You know, the truth of the matter is, is that when I tell these events as they happened, and like you asked the question, is what was in my mind? um, First and foremost is survival. But I always put a check upon... Uh, the the degree to which I express the facts associated with this, because most people can't deal with it. Um, the blood, the violence, the gore, um, you know, the aftermath, all of that are extreme. And um, particularly when, if you stop and think about it, you're actually fighting for sport, um, This is a a live-or-die type situation, but the fact of the matter is it's for sport. Now, some of the combatants would go into the altercation with that in mind, and then others are conditioned to it's a live-or-die type situation. So typically what they would do to ensure that these these battles occurred was that they would pit um, enemies, rival gang members, against each other. So they're almost assured that the altercation is going to occur. The tragedy, I suppose, in that is that um, everyone knows that. You see? And you would think that rather than engage in that, that if you had a choice, that you wouldn't. The fact of the matter is, is that you don't have a choice. That's what I mean by live or die. So that when the gate racks, your door opens, your cell door opens, you go out and you start looking around to see you know who it is and um you know if you have a weapon prepared then you take that weapon with you if you don't then of course it's a matter of assessment you know where's the gunner how many gunners are in the tower you know where the rest of staff oftentimes you could see staff standing up in the windows in the tower watching and um but the main thing is, is the gunner that has the M-14. Um, now, sometimes they would use shotguns, but um, there's a general rule, and there was particularly in Corcoran, no warning shots. So that when you engage, you know that you're not going to get a warning shot to, shot to stop. It um, They're firing to hit you. Um, unfortunately... Um, if it's out on the Shoe, what were called the Shoe Yards, Security Housing Unit Yards, those were very small yards. And so there wasn't much room to move in. And um, most of the individuals in those situations incurred headshots. So they were killed immediately. And um, that was from the M-14. Now, hmm. back then, they also had the 9 millimeter, And uh, that was what was called a glacier round. And um, it was devastating. But um, again, I guess going back to your question, Andrew, about uh, your mindset, um, it's not something really that you think about. You're conditioned, you're trained, hopefully, um, to go out in a tear and, and you know take that assessment of the situation and essentially how you need to maneuver to survive. And that's the key.
1: Right, I'm just going to read a bit more just to confirm this to the public, as documented by The Independent, as far away as the UK was reporting on this. Mm -hmm. So, guards and inmates described macabre scenes in which prison officers gathered in control booths overlooking cramped exercise yards Mm -hmm. in advance of fights, which were sometimes delayed so that female guards and even prison secretaries could be present. The officers were armed with gas guns that fired wooden blocks and rifles. The excuse for purring off prisoners, often members of rival black and Latino gangs, which exercised powerful control, was an official policy of integration, which mandated bringing longtime rivals together at close quarters in the hope that they would learn to live and let live. The mm-hmm. policy was widely derided as a loser that forced inmates into fights and left officers with split-second decisions about life or death. Mm-hmm. It was rescinded.
0: Yeah, that that's well reported, you know. And again, um, I want to emphasize that it really doesn't even begin to touch the surface of the uh, character or nature, if you will, of that violence. It's extreme. You know, we hear a lot nowadays about extreme sports. Um, they don't compare. Here, you're going out to, particularly if it's a, a shoe yard, and uh, you come through a sally port. And then the guard that sits above you in the tower, he keys the door electronically, and you walk out into the yard. And um, again, it's, it's a much more limited space. So it's usually just a matter, and now, now it depends. If you have more than one opponent, and which is oftentimes the case, um, then you have to assess you know, who has the knife, if anyone does have a knife. And typically, they would. Um, and it would depend on who would get out into the yard first. They wouldn't allow you, for instance, to just bring a knife out into the yard. But most individuals that lived in Corcor- Corcoran at that time that were gang members and knew that this was occurring stayed prepared. So they had a knife prepared. And uh, there's a lot involved there. So it's a matter of having to keister that weapon. And that's secreted in your rectum. And then you're processed out to the yard. So they go through all the motions. they they strip search you and and uh, you know check to see if you have weapons on you and you have to go through. you have to bend over and squat and and all these other things. But um, most gang members are trained in how to secrete a weapon and get it out to the yard. But one of the key characteristics, depending on the sequence and who goes out to the yard, And this is what tells you that they know what's happening, is that when you get out to the yard, you have to bring the weapon out of your rectum. And so you can actually see that occurring. Some people are very good, three steps into the yard, and they can have the weapon in their hand if they're prepared properly. Others who aren't as experienced will manage to keister a weapon and get it out to the yard, but they'll go over to the wall and they'll squat down in order to get the weapon out of their rectum. And you're watching all this occurring. So again, it's a matter of um, taking stock, if you will, of the situation, how many there are, who has a weapon, see how many gunners are in the tower, and, um, and then advancing forward to make your move. And, and as always, even in that small space, the key to staying alive is to continue moving, to keep moving, because it makes you um, less of a target. And oftentimes those split decisions that you're talking about is if you take your opponent down, for instance, and say you're leaning over him, um, then you're a target. And that's usually when they take their shot. So they'll take their shot uh, with the explanation that um, imminent harm to the opponent. And so they're justified in it. And typically you'll see that much on the video. You know, and they had a, a terrible habit of erasing these videos. Like I said, I was a captain's clerk. I actually wrote the reports for these. It's called an 837 incident report. So I would write all the officers' reports. I would write the lieutenant's report. And that entire report would then be submitted to Sacramento for review. And usually it was uh, approved and then sent back, and then it was processed. But... um That's one of the situations that I actually got into was a young man by the name of Preston Tate, black man. And he had got into an altercation with a black guard on the tier. And um, uh, Preston spit in the guard's face through the bars. Um, And so what happened was is that he was set up the next morning. Uh, He was led out to the yard with two opponents, Mexican rival gang, and uh, within two minutes, uh, that guard, which, had, uh, uh, which Preston had spit in his face, he went up into the tower. He was actually a floor guard. He didn't have any business being in the tower. He went up into the tower, grabbed an M14, and shot Preston in the head. Now, the real issue there was that two hours before that happened, as a clerk, I received the central files of all three inmates that were going to be involved in this in- altercation and the notes associated with the fact that he had been shot in the head during this (sighs) altercation. So I had the report prepared before the altercation even occurred. Now, when I discovered everything associated with this, I took that to the program lieutenant at the time. His name was Stephen Rigg, and um, asked him to investigate it, which he did he determined that Preston Tate had been murdered. So he attempted to take that information to the FBI. In the course of attempting to take that information to the FBI, uh, he was cut off on the road in his car by the special services unit out of Sacramento, who had learned that he'd taken these documents. Another guard had told on him and told him that he was taking these documents out of the prison and that he was going to expose what was happening. This is actually what led to the Senate Select Committee's investigation and the Department of Justice's investigation into this type of brutality. Now, as a result of that Preston Tate incident, eight guards were indicted. All of them were acquitted by a local oh. jury. So, I mean, there's there's a lot that can be said here. And again, I'll go back to that idea that people say, oh, you know, uh, when you tell your stories, you embellish and you sensationalize. They're not even hearing 70% of it. They really aren't. And it would be, I think, oftentimes, I've had this discussion with many people. I think it would be too traumatic. You know, it, it is um, so far out there that people can't wrap their mind around the fact that these things actually occur. But they do.
2: A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Yeah, I just want to make sure that I've got, got what's going on here. So my understanding is guards would get potentially people they don't like, prisoners or or rivals of different gangs, together in a small space to fight, but often maybe taking bets on it or something like that, but often also standing in a tower waiting for it to get quite dangerous so they could shoot and potentially kill one of the fighting prisoners.
0: Yes, yeah, so they're actually obligated to do that. So the cameras have to be on. See, that by sh- law, when they installed the cameras, it was for that reason. It was to determine accountability as to a lethal force and whether or not that force was excessive. Mm. So they would actually edit those videotapes um, but they had to be able to account for the fact that a fight was occurring, and if weapons were involved, then they were justified, based on their policy, for using lethal force. In other words, killing the inmate. And after in, eight inmates, eight prisoners had been killed, you know, people began to question, okay, what's going on here? Why are you not able to control this? And, um, of course, there were a multitude of questions that came forth and it's in the uh, Senate Select Committee hearings. And um, quite interesting, actually.
1: Michael, who was your first opponent
0: and what happened? Well, you mean in Corcoran? Yep. Oh. Well, uh, he would have been um, a rival gang member. Um, You know, I was um, in the unit there, but I was uh, working as a clerk. And um, when I took the step to go to Lieutenant Rigg with this story, of course... um, Preston Tate's attorney asked to see me, and uh, so I agreed to see her, and she came in, but she, she was not aware that he had been murdered. Uh, she was essentially suing the department on behalf of Preston's family. So she came in to see me, and um, I explained to her that um, um, Preston had been murdered and how he had been murdered and what was involved. And um, that even kicked off a further investigation, but the fact that staff believed that I was now going to testify in court on behalf of the Department of Justice, because eight guards had been indicted, uh, they essentially set me up false charges so that they could put me into the hole. And then to control me relative to the potential for me testifying, they would release inmates out under the tier with me um, in the hopes that they could either shoot me or that these inmates would be successful in killing me. Um, Neither occurred. Um, Only because of, uh, you know, by that time I had a substantial skill set as it relates to um, avoiding being shot, having been shot so many times. Um, The irony, I suppose, is that this is the other side of the coin. Um, of all the times that I had been shot, those 22 times, uh, I was an active gang member and I was engaged in combat with other gang members. And so at least theoretically, uh, being shot was justified and uh, I never took issue with it. You know, every incident report that was ever written on me. in so far as that type of violence and those knife fights, I pled guilty to because in fact I was, so I didn't take issue with it. But now we're talking about being on the other side of the situation where I'm no longer an active gang member. And it's staff that's now worried about me testifying against them relative to their um, illicit conduct uh, within the institution. So, you know, they have far more control over that type of situation. And in my case, exercised that control. So, um, they made sure that I was housed in a unit that had um, individuals that um, essentially would have loved um, to engage me. And so there was no question about the fact that they would engage me and, and did. Um, but insofar as their names, it was both Mexican and black. And um, like I said, essentially what would happen is that, you know, the cell door would open, the gate would rack. And, um, you know, I was always prepared, you know, and and, and that's critical, essential. So um, depending on the outcome, that essentially would be covered up. There would be no incident report. There would be nothing about it um, documented. Mm -hmm. Um, If there were shots fired, then they had to justify shooting um, their weapon. So then you would find a report. And this is one of the things that the Senate Select Committee got into. Of all the thousands of pages of the uh, transcripts from that Senate Select Committee hearing, I'm the only prisoner that was mentioned. And um, there was a reason for that, of course, um, because of the sequence of events leading up to that investigation. Uh, But even Stephen Rigg, when he went before the Senate Select Committee, Lieutenant Rigg, um you know he appeared before the committee with a bulletproof vest on and um uh, Gloria romero who was again the, the chairperson of the committee uh stopped the proceedings and asked him she said sir um do you have a bulletproof vest on and he said yes ma'am i do and she said may i ask why so he went on to explain how his fellow guards had done a drive-by shooting of his own home and uh, that he feared for his life as a result of testifying before the Senate Select Committee on that. Wow. Yeah. That's mad. Just going back to, you
2: know, you're thrown out like a sort of gladiator here and mm-hmm. you mentioned that you have to keep moving so i'm trying mm-hmm. trying to think it because i don't know how you win because if you if you presumably you've got to watch out someone's coming to fight you a mm-hmm. rival gang member or whatever it might be uh, mm-hmm. so you've got to avoid that person but avoid being shot as well so if you fight back yes. too much you get shot if you don't fight back you get killed by the person in front of you but mm-hmm. i presume if you just keep running away for what is it half an hour or however much time you also then lose status in in prison so so what on earth can you do
0: the loss of status is not really an issue. If there were some place to run and you could actually get away, that would actually be the intelligent thing to do. Um, but you're not in that type of situation. It's a very uh, small area that you're talking about. These are what's called a 180 design. That's 180 degrees. So you have essentially a wedge that faces the tower. And so you have to um, confine your movements within that wedge of space. And, um, so the idea of moving is just, it's more like a dance. Andrew is the best way to explain it. So you're fighting an opponent, but in your peripheral, you're watching the guard to see how he's following you. You pretty much know when he's going to begin to shoot. If you become stationary, if you engage your opponent in such a way that you lock, like mm, the term is used locking horns. So if you lock horns with your opponent, then you're stationary now you're a target. And that's what you don't want to do. So the key is to go out and fight your fight as opposed to fighting your opponent's fight. It's no different than when you get into a ring. You don't fight your opponent's fight, you fight your fight. So strategically, these are all things that you're processing. I suppose the the beauty in the brain is that it develops a virtual reality as it relates to these situations. So that when you step out into a situation like that, you really don't have to take in your environment. It's already processed in your head. And so that's an advantage. You know, if you're, if you're new to the environment, then you're, then you're confused as to um, the environment itself, uh, the position of the guards, um, the access they have. They actually have um, short uh, shot portals that they can shoot out of down like underneath, in other words, if you move your fight up underneath the tower, then they can't shoot you. But they have portals, gun portals that they open, and they can stick the barrel through there and shoot down and still get you. But it's limited. So the advantage is to move the fight up underneath the um, the gun tower uh, because it it lessens the chances of the guard being able to actually hit you. If you're out in the open, then you increase those chances because then he can just open a window and he can put his gun through bars there, and he has a pretty clear shot. Mm-hmm. So there, there are a number of factors that come into play there.
1: So you said you'd already been shot multiple times and you had this particular mm-hmm. skill set. Were you shot at Corcoran?
0: No. No, that's it. I've never been shot uh, in these type of altercations. Um, I mean, I've had him... <laughs> I've had them let inmates out in front of my cell to engage. This was choreographed, orchestrated, where they would start a fight in front of my cell. And then my cell door would open. And in their attempt to shoot at these inmates, they were actually shooting into my cell attempting to hit me. And, um, but I was fortunate. In the fights that I engaged in in Corcoran, uh, because of the movement, um, I was never shot in those situations. It would have been a, a difficult thing. It, it would have it would have had to have been a situation where I was using a knife on an individual, and uh, that would have had to been captured uh, on camera, and so they were justified in lethal force against me. So uh, it's a matter of not allowing that to occur.
2: I, I wonder, Sean, do you want to stick on um, on on the prison, or, or move on a little bit to Michael's uh, story in general?
1: Yeah, I've just got a, a bit more on Corcoran then. So you said that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes one opponent would be put up against two or three opponents. Mm-hmm. Was that because someone had a particular skill set and they were trying to balance it out mm-hmm. to make sure that person got tucked down? And did, did that happen to you, for example? First uh, fight one on one, they saw, you know, what you were capable of and then they started to stack the odds against you?
0: Well, actually, my experience has been is that uh, there's an advantage in fighting multiple opponents, um, because you can use their bodies, their energy um, against mm-hmm. them, essentially, so that you're covering yourself, you know, and like I, I made reference to the fact that it's a dance, and that's always been my style of fighting, so they're there given elements associated with that. I won't go too deep into that, but there's, you know, the water element, the air element, uh, the grounding of earth, there's a fire element, and those are all, um, specific techniques associated with combat. And so how you utilize those, how you engage in those, um, particularly with multiple opponents actually works to your advantage. If it's a single opponent and then you have to modify your approach to that. And, uh, particularly if your opponent has a weapon. So the idea is to prevent yourself from being stabbed, if possible, take the weapon away from your opponent, but all the while, not staying stationary so that if you are able to to um engage your opponent and um disable him and then move without stopping in the course of that dance up underneath the tower then they're going to be hard pressed to justify shooting you you see so it's it's comes down to your strategy associated with the tactic that you employ depending on the number of opponents that you have and um and how you facilitate that so that that's what i meant previously when i said skill set when you have um, decades as i had at that time of experience uh, in close quarter combat and then that works to your advantage Uh, the one place that uh, they were never able to get me out onto was the shoe yard that i was talking about they would not have been able to justify that the only time that they Attempted that was when they had a full yard out. That's multiple individuals out on the shoe yard. And they popped me out of my cell and asked me if I wanted to go to the yard. And I said, yes. And so they, they allowed me to walk out right to the door. And I, you know, it was like it was a test, um, you know whether they'd let me out there. Had they let me out there, um, it would, they would have been hard pressed to justify it. But they wanted to see if I would do it. And uh, I went all the way through with it and said, open the door. And um, they didn't open the door, fortunately for me, um, because that would have been a very difficult situation to contend with.
2: This uh, might sound a bit innocent, I don't know. But I mean, these are people who are are prisoners who have committed crimes uh, like yourself. But they're not savages, right? So. uh, Is there no recourse in this situation to just say to the other prisoner in this moment, you know, hey, mate, come on, um, let's not fight here. Because if we do, we're going to get shot by these people. Let's just chill out. I know we've got our differences, but this isn't going to be good for anyone. I mean, is that a bit naive of me?
0: It's not necessarily naive. It is innocent. And I have Mm. a great appreciation for that level of innocence. It goes to your sense of humanity, Andrew. And, um, well, that's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing. Um, I enjoy hearing it as a matter of fact. Now you think that, uh, just the opposite would be true. You know, say, Oh my goodness, Andrew, you're so naive. It's not a question of that. Reasonable people would like to think that you could approach a situation situation like we're talking about in a reasonable way in a humane way, but that's not the nature of prison. And so, um, I've had instances where um, entire groups were pairing off to do battle. And uh, I observed uh, guards standing on the second tier. This was at Old Folsom taking book as individuals paired off. And um, I hollered to everybody and made them stop and pointed to the window and showed them and told them, look, we're their entertainment. So we did stop and we came together as groups. And decided to oppose the guards and did that successfully Um, but that's an entirely different story but in the context that we're talking about now at corcoran in those type of scenarios um, it's not a situation where the individuals that are being pitted against each other are rival gang members and so they're sworn enemies mortal enemies and so not to engage your mortal enemy, given the opportunity, because the opportunity doesn't often present itself, um, would be deemed cowardice. And you would be killed as a result by your own people.
1: Michael, could you tell us who Mushroom George was?
0: Uh, George Smith. Um, he was the Warden of Corcoran. You know, and um, I knew George Smith you know, as an individual. And uh, I thought he was a good man. Um, I thought he was an intelligent man. Um, But he had reached the point in his career where I think he'd become mm, tired. And there was a lot going on at Corcoran. So his subordinates, associate wardens and captains, essentially took control of the prison. And that's what was happening. So he acquired the name Mushroom George um, because – It was said that like a mushroom, he was kept in the dark and fed manure. Um, And that was basically true. So, you know, I don't doubt um, that George thought that um, the things that were alleged that were going on were not going on, particularly on his watch. But the fact of the matter, they were. I mean, one of his associate wardens and one of his captains were members of the Hells Angels. And uh, they were not only throwing parties with the secretarial pool, you know, they had uh, uh, club members, you know, wearing their, their patch, carrying cases of whiskey, walk right into the prison and uh, set up, you know, in the warden's office. And uh, they would have parties. So, I mean, people say, oh, that didn't happen. Well, I'm here to tell you it did happen. What I just told you was actually mm. the subject of investigation.
2: I just was going to ask, um, what has this experience taught you about the Thin Blue Line, the concept that people with a propensity towards violence or immoral behavior are drawn to both criminal activities and also police or warden work?
0: It's an interesting thought. I mean, oftentimes, you know, we talk about the Thin Blue Line and we're talking about the idea of uh, uh, you don't give up your fellow officers uh, for their unethical conduct you know and the irony in that is when you turn to the prison gangs the idea of you don't snitch out or rat on your your contemporaries associated with that and um you know the fascinating fascinating thing about that is that those codes are put in place to protect the organization you know people say oh you know you don't rat you don't snitch you don't cross the thin blue line you don't do this that's to protect those individuals who are engaged in illicit illegal, unethical conduct. Now, that's to be expected of the gangs, because that's what they are. They're, they are factions by some degree of organized crime. And so there's a, an expectation of loyalty to that. You know, it depends, again, on the individual. I'll use myself as an example. I engaged in Um, multiple episodes of of violence with my enemies um, was developing an infrastructure for the gang was involved in organized crime but that organization reached a point where it deviated from that which i believed was its basic code of conduct you know for me it was a warrior code so that when they took it upon themselves to decide to start killing women and children then i said i will not condone that and if i just sit by and do nothing about it then i am condoning it so you to my way of thinking i had to take um active steps to ensure that that issue the taking of innocent life was addressed so the same applies to that thin blue line that you're talking about you know we hear a lot about whistleblowers no one ever stops to think about how much how much protection has to be placed upon whistleblowers for doing the right thing or the ethical thing as it relates to, let's go back to the thin blue line. You have police officers who are carrying out um, executions, who are engaged in organized crime, yet their fellow officers are expected to support that because they're fellow officers. So you really get... No divergence there, as it relates to the gang or law enforcement. They're one and the same. It applies the same. You see, and but as a society, we're so conditioned to this idea that you know, don't tell, don't snitch, don't rat, and there needs to be a lot more conversation about why that is. You know, we now have a saying uh, within the, the various communities that. If you see something, say something. You see, and that now applies to domestic terrorism. And it's one of the things that um, I'm working very strenuously on with other people, because I believe it, it represents a real threat to this country and to our communities and to our families and so on. And so, you know, we need to get away from this idea that if you see somebody engaged in activity that has the potential to harm families, innocent ones, the community in general, or this country, then by all means say something. Then that same attitude applies all the way down the line for the same reasons. But oftentimes people don't take that into consideration, unfortunately. That's why there needs to be a lot more conversation about this. So,
1: Michael, this Corcoran prison stuff is some of the most extreme we've ever heard on the channel Mm. and i think the world you know definitely needed to hear the details that i appreciate that it's it's important to understand the dynamics of something that could happen um and my ears are still trying to process it all but just Mm. when you think it can't get any worse i'm going to read the beginning of an article from the los angeles times now Mm
0: -hmm.
1: from october 20th 1999 in graphic and tearful testimony, former inmate Eddie Dillard told a jury on Tuesday that he knew the fate that awaited him when guards transferred him to the cell of Corcoran State Prison's notorious booty bandit. Mm-hmm. Telling jurors yeah. that his account was too painful to recall in every detail, Dillard said he pleaded with Officer Anthony Silva that inmate Wayne Robertson was his documented enemy and a well known rapist as Silva led him to Robertson's cell that day in March 1993. He said Silver ignored his pleas and watched the door clang shut, vowing that he would check out Dillard's claim and, if true, come back to relocate him. But Dillard said no one returned and he was raped repeatedly over the next few days. I can't describe it, Dillard told the court, breaking down in tears. Half of it I don't even want to remember. I just remember him raping me again and again and again. I mean, this is just another level yes. of nightmares, isn't it?
0: Well, it is, you know, and oftentimes, you know, again, it, it it's one of those subjects that needs to be addressed. I oftentimes hear, um, usually in the police context, law enforcement context, you know, they threaten people with going to the big house or going to the joint. If you drop the soap in the shower, you know what's going to happen. Um, you know, that's a really oversimplified um Explanation of what we're talking about here, particularly as it relates to Rudy the Brute and others like him, because it ha- it happened often. You know, I think one of the worst experiences I've ever had is listening to a man being raped on the tier in a cell, another cell with another person. It's brutal, and uh, and I've had that experience. But these were the tactics that were employed. Um, by guards to control individuals and oftentimes it was just to feed that for no other reason and it you know it begs the question you know what would allow a individual who's been sworn to uphold the law and to protect to place an individual in that type of circumstance you see, it's, um, it's tragic. As for Dillard himself, you know, I can't imagine, and I'm not going to pretend like I can't. Like I said, I've, I've heard this occurring, you know, and I know that those things did occur because I was at Corcoran at the time of Rooted the Brute. I wrote the incident reports associated with his rape of other inmates. You know, so I, know I have firsthand knowledge relative to that. Um, so I know that these things did occur. Um but the callousness, the lack of humanity on the part of those individuals that allowed this to happen, that facilitated this against another human being.
2: Do you do you now feel a little bit I don't know. I, I suppose I'm just wondering about the human condition. And once mm-hmm. we're sort of put in those kinds of places what we can become, like, how does that happen that somebody loses their humanity to such an extent? I mean, I know there are psychopaths. I know there's 1% of the population that have no empathy, but it feels like it's something bigger than that that's happening.
0: I think the short answer to your question, Andrew, is fear. Mm. Um, You see, fear is is really the motivation behind most violence. Um, You know, whether that fear is associated with a particular bias or prejudice, which is usually the case, uh, but it's usually fear that's at the root of the type of violence that we're talking about. So then what it becomes is a question of survival. And for many people, um, those individuals who have been vested, if you will, with the responsibility for their care and their protection, use that as leverage. So that if they want to garner some kind of. Um, information um then they'll use that fear mechanism um to um solicit that cooperation from an individual i mean that's again another oversimplification there are so many many layers of of um corruption that we're talking about here Um, and it doesn't just happen in prison you know, it happens in jails, and it happens in other institutions. It happens in mental facilities. You know, I'm, I read about it all the time. The people who are put in a position of responsibility, thus power, use that um, to prey upon other individuals in some capacity. Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly not a psychiatrist or psychologist, and and I'm I'm not. Um, I don't have the wherewithal to address that on that level um but i know that as a human being i know how that impacts upon me and how that makes me feel and you know we talk about the human condition and um you know that comes in a multitude of forms what's really important i think here is we have this discussion is human nature and what it is to be human and you know to, to engage and social mores and ways, Um, that sense of uh, morality, if you will, and and what that means toward our fellow human beings insofar as how we treat them. Um, And of course, you know, there are two sides to that. You always hear the argument, uh, one, of course, is hate and the other is love. Um, I personally don't believe they are at loggerheads. I think what it really is, is fear and um, you know how fear motivates individuals to succumb um, to something other than what they know their natural um, inclination and their humanity uh, to be.
1: The LA Times reported that guards were laughing as they fed victims to Rudy the Brute, and Rudy was vilified as one of Cochrane's most violent inmates, a convicted murderer, with a long history of sexual assault, a prison enforcer who received special favors from guards. He raped and beat at least a dozen cellmates during 20 years. Many of the victims, small and young looking, like Dillard, according to prison documents introduced at the trial.
0: Yeah, Rudy the Brute was just one of them. I mean, he had others. Roger Dale Smith immediately comes to mind. I know for a fact, um, when I say fact, I mean, I've actually read the record, his record. Um, his documents of over 100 rapes. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to, to talk with him about that. Now, you know, he eventually became known as Pincushion Smith. And uh, that was because he was, he was hit numerous times and survived it. Um, so he became somewhat infamous for that. But uh, this is a man who, you know, I asked point blank, you know, why do you rape these men? And his response to me was that they like it. He actually, he actually believed that. And, um, you know, that's another, uh, story. And, um, but you know, Roger Dale Smith was, um, the same as Rudy, the brute, and there are many others like them. And, um, you know, that's unfortunate. That when you live in a controlled environment, that that, um, this is one of the realities that you're dealing with.
2: Thank you so much to Sean Atwood for sorting that out and for being such a brilliant co-host. Go visit his YouTube channel and audio podcast. Just type his name in. Thanks too to Michael Thompson, founder of the Aryan Brotherhood, someone I didn't imagine myself having a calm and collected conversation with. Part two will be out next week. We're also looking into black holes and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I'm Andrew Gold, and you've been on the
1: edge. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.